and Josh has been with me. And uh, the cashier were, said the last time we were there, you know, you're one of the luckiest kids in the world. And Josh had an opportunity to say to them, you know, this is not for me. This is for some child somewhere in the world. And the cashier said, well, you're the 20th person to come through. So I like the collective witness of the church, of the city, to love these children through Operation Christmas Child. And it gives me great joy to see these things pile up in our lobby atrium and then imagine the face of the child when they receive it. So jump in with us this time and pack up one of the boxes. We'll be collecting through the month of October. Now we're going to try something a little risky. We're going to go online, if we can do this. I want to show you something. This is a website known as uh, www.greatcommission2020. It's uh, real time. This is um, really happening. In the world, God is moving in places he's never moved before. God is moving in ways he's never moved before. And these are individuals um, notifying this website of their conversion and asking for discipleship materials. And so as you see one kind of pop on the board, I want you to say out where in the world you see it happening. Can you see that far, your eyes working? Just say some of those names of those cities. Go ahead now. You're in church. You can talk. (laughs) Tunisia, that's North Africa. God is moving there. See? Talk to me. Okay, we're in this together. Okay. All right, Algeria. All right, good. How about Karachi, Pakistan? Did you know something's happening there in that city? God is moving there. How about Vietnam, Hanoi? We're talking about real time, what God is really doing worldwide. Our God is a global God. He's given us a global mission to make disciples of all the nations. And so we're seeing here, right in our very eyes, front of our eyes, God moving through our world, doing things we never could have imagined. Thousands and thousands of people every day coming into the kingdom, longing to be discipled. You can be part of this also. You can hook up with this and actually disciple people throughout the world as they ask questions. Is God awesome or what? Is our God good or what? Is our God moving or what? Great Commission 2020, www. You can go online and see this for yourself. It'll encourage your soul as you see the hand of God move. Let me begin by a question I'm asking you this morning. How is God calling you? <laughs> chapter 9 of the book of Acts, if you have a Bible, chapter 9, I love to hear Bibles turning. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts begins with Saul out on a mission to destroy the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yet Saul was making all kinds of threats. When he was on the outskirts of a city known as Damascus, he was riding on his horse. Now we know of the country Syria, the capital of which is Damascus. And not too far from here is a town, Damascus. And there is a road to Damascus, Road 27. And Paul was on the road, the pathway to Damascus. And Paul was suddenly struck blind by a blazing light from heaven. Now, if you're looking in the direction of a camera and the flash goes off, you know that you're temporarily blinded. You see some spots. But now a much brighter light has appeared. This is the light of the presence of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God. This is Jesus in his resurrected self. And though Paul is blinded by this bright light, it was his first glimpse of the perfect righteousness of God. For the first time in his life, he is humbled. If you can imagine his clothing signifying his robe of righteousness, he realizes now his robe of righteousness is nothing more 
than a filthy rag. Paul was the ultimate high achiever of his day. He was as religious as any man could possibly be. Now, if you're not Jewish, this may not mean something to you. Let me tell you about Paul's background by his own testimony. Philippians 3 says that Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, bearing in his own body the mark that he was one of the chosen ones. He was of the race of Israel, a member of the nation in covenant relationship with God. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. The first king was a Benjamite. When Israel went into battle, they said, After thee, O Benjamin. Benjamin led, the tribe of Benjamin, led Israel into battle. He was a Hebrew of all Hebrews. There were many in the diaspora, the dispersion, who had forgotten their culture, forgotten their language. But Paul spoke beautiful Hebrew. He was a Pharisee, meticulously keeping the law. He was so zealous for the traditions, he brought persecution against the church. Paul could say that when I added it all up, I could boast. If any man could boast in the flesh, Paul could boast. He said, when I looked at myself in relationship to others, all my achievements, I considered myself very righteous. But now the great Pharisee, Paul, Saul, is in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is speaking to him just like Jesus is speaking to us. I am sure that Paul never forgot the day God moved in his direction. God intervened in his journey. God showed up in his path. What was it like to look into the face of Jesus? What was it like to hear his voice? To look into the face of pure love. To see his tenderness and his affection. To hear the kindness of his voice. To be in the presence of someone who knows everything about you and loves you intensely. This was the day that Saul met Jesus. It was his great awakening. The story of Saul's spiritual transformation ought to remind us to never write off any person as being beyond the reach of God. We may do so with relatives who seem very far from God. We may write off a sinner whose pathway seems very destructive. We may write off somebody who finds himself in a cult. But the scripture is clear that God can reach any person anytime. Saul was so immersed in his lifestyle, he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. He simply was doing what he knew to do. I was watching some footage this week of two, actually three high school girls in Chicago, two of whom pummeling their classmate over some social media insult. You may have seen the footage. The school camera was rolling, and the teacher was there standing on the sidelines. They simply were doing what they knew to do. They knew how to fight, and they were using violence, practicing what they know. Saul himself was filled with anger and with hate and with violence. He believed that he was showing his love for God by hunting down Christians. Now, there's plenty of religious people in our world. The extremists are filled with anger and hate and violence. We see the extreme Hindus in India bringing persecution against the church. We see the extreme Muslims around the world bringing persecution against the church. But we also should bear in mind that those who are so angry have a reason to be angry. 
There is extreme poverty. There is extreme ignorance. And one of the tasks of us believers is to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. Opening our hands to the hungry. Educating the ignorant. Showing love to the people of this world. Extreme Hindus burning down Christian churches. Extreme Muslims targeting Christians. We saw that this week in Egypt. 24 Coptic Christians targeted by the government, killed in religious violence. Even the anger and violence that comes out of the church in Topeka, Kansas, condemning people. Religion itself is a list of do's and don'ts. And religious people can become very angry and hateful and violent. But there was one glimpse of Jesus was enough to convince Saul that he was on the wrong road, heading with the wrong speed in the wrong direction. Saul was on the wrong road in the wrong destination, the wrong reason. So let me ask you a question early on. What path are you on? Are you on? What direction is your life taking? A pilot friend of mine was flying and had lost his bearings. So the control tower called him saying, give us your bearings. And he said, temporarily unsure of my position, which meant I'm very lost. (laughs) He was looking for somebody to give direction to him because he was lost in his journey. God loves to confirm to us that we're on the right path. But God as well will bring correction to us when we're on the wrong path. And sometimes it's a mid-course correction that God wants to bring to us. Reflecting on what happened in this moment, Paul wrote in Philippians, But whatever things were of gain to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count them as loss, I count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from trying to keep the law, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. God was calling Paul to halt his his maddening pace. His entire frame of reference was being altered. His perspective was being changed. His way of life was being radically transformed. Paul would no longer hunger for human applause. He was no longer driven to earn his righteousness on his own. He felt bankrupt, reduced to zero. Paul had worked for many things in his life, but now he considered them loss and rubbish. Having clothed himself with the pride of self-achievement, he now stood unclothed and naked. Having felt like such a success, he now realized he was a failure. You see, it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we find the beginnings of God. You could say of the Apostle Paul before he was converted that he had a performance orientation. Many grow up then as well as now believing this formula. My performance plus other people's opinions about me equals my self-worth. That is to say that what I do and what other people say about what I do equals my value. We tend to reward in our world the good performers. The good actors, they get Oscars. The good singers, they get Grammys. The good scientists, they get Nobel Peace Prizes. The good golfers, they get green jackets. The good hockey players, they get Stanley Cups. 
The good writers, they get Pulitzer Prizes. And the good students, well, they get scholarships. The emphasis of Saul's life was on his own performance. You could say he was a performance junkie. He spoke fluent Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. He studied under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of his day. He advanced quickly up the ladder. He became a Pharisee, a keeper of the law. He was always studying. He was always traveling. He was always doing. He was always pushing. And if he believed that if he worked hard enough and was good enough, he could earn favor with God. You see, he was proud of himself. He didn't take time to look beneath his own personal iceberg. He took pride in his own accomplishments. He was the embodiment of a proud, pious Pharisee, feeling that he was superior to others, that others were inferior to him, that out of his pride he could condemn others, that out of his pride he could judge others, that out of his pride he could punish others. You see, if we never see our own sin, if we only see the sins of others, we are proud. If we never get honest about our own faults, if we only just blame other people and attack other people, we are proud. And Paul had a lot of pride. I wonder about us and our pride. I wonder how proud we have become, how self-sufficient and independent. Never asking someone for help, we're living in pride. And Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul. Now this is a double appellative. It is God getting his attention. Wherever in scripture you see the, the name of a person be used twice, like Samuel, Samuel, or Moses, Moses, it's God trying to get that person's attention. If I were to say like Brian, Brian, or Bob, Bob, using that name twice, that's me trying to get the person's attention. You see, he's asking the question here, why do you persecute me? Why are you hassling me? To persecute somebody is to hassle them. Why are you hassling me? Why are you out to get me? He's, God is asking him to examine his own motivation. Saul, why do you do the things you do? Saul, think about the course of your life. Remember in the garden, God was trying to have a conversation with Adam, and he said, where are you, Adam? What have you done? Now, God knew exactly what Adam had done. He was full of guilt and his shame over what he had done. But it's only when we know where we are that we can turn back to God. If you're running fast this morning, never thinking much about God, you have to know where you are in order to turn back to him. So God asked the question to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Where are you in your life? Are you going in the wrong direction? You could ask some why questions, don't you? Why do you work so hard? Why do you fall into bed exhausted? Why do you give yourself never a break? Why do you leave your clothes laying there on the floor? That's a question Debbie asked me. Why do you leave dishes in the sink? Why do you do the things you do? It's a call to self-examination. God was calling Saul to examine himself. Why do you come home so late? 
Why do you drink so much? Why do you eat the things that aren't good for you? You see, these are questions of self-examination calling us to motive. And God was calling Saul to examine himself, just like God is calling us to examine ourselves. And that Saul had a question for God, like, who are you, Lord? (laughs) How can we call upon the name of the Lord if we don't know him? Isaiah says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, to show you compassion. The Lord will show compassion to whom he shows compassion. The Lord will show mercy to whom he shows mercy. Because our God is filled with compassion and full of mercy. Our God is able to help you overcome your addiction. Our God is able to heal the broken places in your life. Our God is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. Our God is able to give peace to our weary souls. And our God is able to give us contentment in this world. You know, if you ask God, who are you? Read through the book of John and discover who he is. I am the bread of life. And those who partake of me find satisfaction in their souls. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other path to the Father. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I am the doorway through which all men must pass. He is the great I am. I am the Son of God. I am the anointed and appointed one. I am the Messiah. You see, Paul was having this conversation with God. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul then asked, who are you, Lord? Jesus could have said, I am the king. Saul, you've been running your own life. You've been sitting on your own throne. You've been living as if you are God. But I want you to know that I am king. Jesus now is speaking to him with authority. And he says to him, get up and go into the city of Damascus and you will be told what you must do. He is moving from being self-directed to being directed by Jesus. Saul is blinded by the light. And he begins now to see the darkness in his own soul. For three days, he begins to grapple with his own sin. Read through the story. Three days, he was in this house, blinded. He begins dealing with his own pride, becoming humble. He begins dealing with his own darkness, that he's come into the light. He begins to deal with his own religiosity, beginning a relationship with God. He begins letting go of his anger and his hatred and his violence. He begins dealing with the hardness of his heart, becoming soft and broken. He realizes that he has been living in the flesh. He thought he was doing God's work when he really was hindering the movement of God. I ask the question, how much are we like Saul? Living in our own pride being driven to achieve, keeping our secrets in darkened places, trying to be religious to earn the favor of God, controlled by our own anger and hatred, hardened deep down, living in the flesh. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I lived in a house with 10 other guys from all over the world. We were students together. And usually on my street, There was no place to park. But on this night, I came home late. There was a place available for me right in front of my house. So I pulled into that space, space, and I felt very proud of myself that I had this space. Now, everybody else was watching the Weather Channel and knew that a great snowstorm was coming. And so the places that were usually taken were not there, and I had a place to pull into. And I felt so very proud of myself that I had a space. So I pulled in, 
to my space. I walked out of my car in the front door and I uh, went to bed. When I woke up in the morning, about a foot of snow had fallen through the night. And I didn't realize the snow clouds worked through the night in that place. And they covered my car with the snow. I couldn't even tell the color of my car anymore. So I realized that what I needed to do was to um, try to solve my own problem. But I didn't have a shovel. I think I had like a, one of those um, you know, scrapers, you know. So I'm trying to dig out my car with my little scraper in my hands. I'm digging through this all. And one of my friends passed by and says, Art, do you need any help? I said, no, I, I have it covered. You know, me and my scraper, we're going to be great together. So I was just digging out my car, working on my scraper, just kind of like, you know, God's humbling me. I'm, I'm digging out my car. So I realized what I needed to do was go inside the house and get some hot water because I couldn't open the door, you know. The door was locked. It's kind of frozen shut. So I figured that, in my pride, I could basically put hot water onto that lock and door and release it. I didn't realize that when it's that cold outside, it instantly turns into more ice. And what I realized was God was radically humbling me. I was learning that <laughs> I was learning that I needed to ask others for help and admit when I made a mistake and invite other people into my life. I'm just wondering if there's any pride in your own life. I'm just wondering if you're walking in your own religiosity trying to earn favor by God by being good enough. There's a lot of religious people who are living in pride, but really what deep down they've got is this anger in their soul and disappointment and disillusionment. And Paul himself now is being confronted in his arrogance and pride. God is dealing with him in his pride, and he's humbling him. And for three days, this man is grappling with his own sin. What is the sin that you are grappling with? Sometimes it is, it's hidden from our eyes, it's like veiled from our eyes. Saul's sin was veiled from his eyes, and God was beginning to illumine to him his own sin. You see, the restoration would happen when he became honest. No more hiding, no more pretending, no more covering up, but being honest about his own sin. I ask the question, how is God calling you? And what is God calling you into? At this very moment, God was calling Saul into a relationship with himself. God may be calling you also into a deeper relationship with himself. There's a calling upon your life. God has a calling for you to do, and it begins with a relationship with him. God has put you on this earth to fulfill a purpose. Some of you here are called to be teachers. Being called to be a teacher, you love making lesson plans. And you love engaging with students. And you love when their lights go on and they understand something. You're an encourager when your students are discouraged. You're a hope giver when your students are in despair. And you're a listener when parents or students need to talk. You're called to be a teacher. And some of you are called into the medical field. You could be a nurse or a support staff or a physician's assistant or a physician. Being called into medicine, you're called to care for the sick, to listen carefully to what's going on in their life, to administer tests, and to steer that patient toward wellness. You are the hands of Jesus touching the sick. You are the ears of Jesus listening to the patient. You are the heart of Jesus showing mercy. Some of you here are called into business and information and technology. You're thinking about systems and 
getting the most out of your technology, and seeking solving problems with your technology. You really understand what's going on with your iPhone, and I don't. You love information, technology, and business. Some of you here are called into the military. There's a, there's a number of people here in our church who are being called into the military. You're part of the 9-11 generation. You're called to be a warrior. There are battles going on that God is calling you to fight. And at the same time, we're beginning here to think about a ministry of support to those called to the military, some prayer warriors on their behalf, providing for soldiers and their families who are called away. Some of you here are called to pray. There's a movement in America called Intercessors, Intercessors for America, and a great spiritual movement and awakening is happening in this land as many are being called to pray. Are you aware that there are 400 prayer cells now in Hollywood praying for each actor and producer, director by name? There are prayer cells in Washington, D.C., praying over the White House and Congress and Supreme Court. God may be calling you to prayer, but I'm telling you, there is a calling upon your life, and Saul is being called by God. Secondly, what is God calling you to be and God calling you to do? Acts chapter 9, verse 15 says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What is God calling you to be? To be totally devoted to him. To be fully his. To be filled with his Holy Spirit. To be awakened from your slumber. To be alive. To be an overcomer. To be a voice. To be set apart unto God. You see, God is calling us to be, and God is calling us to do. There's a calling of God upon your life. Do you know what your calling is? The Lord called a man by the name of Ananias to go to Saul. He said, Ananias, I have a mission for you. I have a message for you to deliver. Ananias would deliver God's message. He would call Saul his brother. It must have been very difficult for Ananias to deliver this message to Saul who persecuted Christians. So why did Ananias do it? The first reason is he did it because God told him to do it. The second reason is he did it out of faith. The third is he had forgiven Saul and God had called him to forgive his enemy. What was the message that Ananias brought to deliver to Saul? The first is that this man is my chosen instrument. I have chosen him. I have selected him. This man is my chosen instrument. Secondly, I have work for him to do. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. He will not be ashamed of my name. He will not be embarrassed by my name. He will be a soldier, a warrior. He will travel the world proclaiming my name. He will write 13 of the New Testament books. He will establish 30 churches in his lifetime. I have a work for this man to do. I have taken this man out of darkness and brought him into light. I have snatched this man from the clutches of the enemy, and he will deliver many souls from their strongholds. I have forgiven his sins that he may proclaim the forgiveness of sins to others. And I have shown my grace to him that he may show grace 
unto others. God is so willing to use us, no matter what we have done, that God can use us. Many would consider Paul to have done stuff to disqualify him from being used. But God would forgive him and show his grace to him and then anoint him and appoint him for the work he called him to do. God did a great work in this man. In 1 Timothy, this is what Paul said. I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, for giving me strength. For he has appointed me unto this work, and he has considered me faithful. For I once was a violent man, and a blasphemer, and a persecutor of the church. But I was shown mercy, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of the Lord Jesus was lavished out, was poured out upon my life, along with faith and love. For here is a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But as an example of his unlimited patience, God showed his patience unto me. What, what Paul could testify was that God wanted to use his life, that God had chosen him, He was a chosen vessel to do the will and the work of God. And you also are a chosen vessel. You know, in my office, there is a blue cup, and nobody gets a drink from that cup because it is my chosen vessel. It actually was a gift given unto me, and I can only drink from that cup because it has been set apart for my use and my use only. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you were set apart unto him. You are his vessel his chosen vessel for the work that God has called you to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are a chosen vessel? Do you believe that God has chosen you? Do you believe that you're appointed unto a specific work? Do you believe you have a purpose upon this earth? There was a man, he grew up in a Jewish background, and he went to Hebrew school for many, many years. But he had this question, who am I and what is my purpose And why am I here upon this earth? And only when he came to faith in Jesus Christ did he discover who he was and why he is here and what his purpose is. And it's only when you know him that you'll know yourself of why you're here and what your purpose upon this earth really is. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul was not exempted from suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. You look at all the achievements of Paul, but you also look at all of his suffering. Five times from the Jews, he received 40 lashes minus one. On his body, he bore the marks of Jesus. Three times, he was beaten with rods. Once, he was stoned. I'm not talking about marijuana. And three times, he was shipwrecked. You see, Paul himself knew much suffering for the name of Jesus. I talk to people who find themselves in suffering. They suffer from their wounds, are wounded warriors from the military, about people wounded economically from the economy, having gone through bankruptcy, wounded in their bodies from physical ailments. I declare to you this. The gospel is not only the gospel of prosperity, but the gospel is the gospel of adversity, that there is a deeper fellowship with God through our sufferings. If Jesus himself suffered, then Jesus can identify with you in your sufferings. He's very tender towards you in your also sufferings. And there's a fellowship of suffering. 
The songwriter said, blessed be his name on a road marked by suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be his name. How is God calling you? What is God calling you to be and to do? And lastly, this question, who has God put in your life to be a part of the process? We'll go to chapter 9 and verse 26. When Saul came to the city of Jerusalem, he tried to hook up with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, believing he really wasn't a disciple. But there came a man whose name was Barnabas, and Barnabas brought him to the apostles. Barnabas said, Peter, meet Saul. Saul, Peter. Andrew, meet Saul. Saul, Andrew. He made the introductions. He believed in him when nobody else believed in him. He heard his testimony, how the Lord had spoken to him, how he'd seen the Lord. He had heard his story about how God had worked in his life. And now Barnabas was his encourager. They were forming a lifelong relationship of encouragement to one another. Who has God put in your life to be your encourager? Your encourager when things are up and where things are falling apart. When things are well, as well as when things aren't so well. When things are really high, as well as when things are low. You see, what marked the life of Barnabas to Saul was he was his great encourager. He was part of that process. I want to be your encourager. And I want you to feel the encouragement of prayer. So I'm going to invite the prayer warriors to stand, if you would, please, and come. And our praise band to come on back. We're trying to allot some prayer, some time for prayer in our services, where simply if there's a need in your life, I want you to feel the freedom to pray. Jesus said, this house, my house, shall be called a house of prayer. There may be some stirrings in your soul. There may be something God is calling you to be, something God is calling you to renounce, something God is calling you to confess something God is calling you to step forward into. There may be relationships that are strained, that need prayer. Maybe a situation you're facing in your life is just so heavy, it's just kind of weighing you down. So we've allotted some time to prayer. And these are really some awesome people, some good people who will pray with you. And I would love it if you would take advantage of these moments to pray. I told you last week about being at a concert. There were prayer warriors, but I didn't take advantage of it. And I left her feeling like there was some business undone in my life. So as we begin to worship, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you that you are working all over this world. That you're calling forth prayer warriors, intercessors from our own land, from other lands, to pray on behalf of America. And we pray, Lord, for this great awakening, this stirring. And we thank you, Lord, for drawing the great apostle Paul to yourself, your chosen vessel who would bear your name before Gentiles and kings, his own people. And so your people here, Lord, they're facing various trials and tribulations. They find themselves in situations and there's a great need for prayer. Lord, as we worship together, help us to take advantage of these moments and to really step into prayer with one another, to be honest and open, no more pretending, no more hiding, just openness and transparency with you and with each other. Move among us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Would you stand with us as we close?